Those things get said at my house all the time. Here's two, right? One more time, it's my turn to say happy Mother's Day um, to all the ladies in the house and for, for what you mean to uh, your families, what you mean to God's family here. Uh, we just over and over today want to say um, we're thankful. We're thankful for you and bless you. I want to welcome you today. Thanks for joining us. Um, some of you joining us online, we're grateful that you would take the time to, to meet today with us. For all of you who are at different campuses today, um, this year we have been reading and studying our way through the book of Luke. And Luke is the name of one of the early followers of Jesus who was called to record the story of, of Jesus' life. This week, we have arrived in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we find what is often referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem for the final time. Well, it's actually gonna happen again, but that's another talk, all right? But this is the final time before the cross. I, I was recently made aware of something that I have found to be true. Wherever you go around the world, there are some things that you find in common in most every country. And one such thing is a statue of some dude on a horse. It's true. A, a warrior horseman. Uh, the, the statues are found all over the world, from France to, to, to Spain to Italy. I, I mean, in Washington, D.C., you, you can find a statue of George Washington on a horse. Even in Kansas City, there are some statues of a dude on a horse. But the most famous dude on a horse was probably Alexander the Great. In fact, he was so famous that even his horse's name really has become famous. Um, I think we got an image here of, of Alexander the Great and Bucephalus. How's that for a horse, a war horse, right? Bucephalus is his name. Here's what I find interesting. Alexander rode his war horse around the ancient world, conquering through, through force and through violence. But just a very short time before that, there was a Hebrew prophet named Zechariah. And Zechariah foretells a very different vision about a very different king. And I want you to hear what he says. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly. And riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. And sure enough, that's how Jesus entered Jerusalem some 500 years later after Zechariah said it would be so. 
The day is often what we call Palm Sunday, when the people wave the palm branches as Jesus rides into town, but not on a war horse, but a donkey of peace. And it's interesting the tension that existed that day. I say there's a tension because a part of that day was a day of understanding. Um, And that understanding led to joy. What the people understood is that this appears to be the one that God has always promised would come and, and save us. This appears to be the Messiah, the son of David, the long awaited ruler. And the result that day, it says that they praised him. There was joy. But it was also a day of misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding would lead to destruction. The misunderstanding, they thought Jesus would enter Jerusalem and by his mighty works, he would take his throne and he would make Israel free from Rome. Now the truth is he would take his throne, but not like they thought he would. And the result of that misunderstanding was destruction. For one, a few days later, they will murder Jesus. And 40 years later, the destruction of Jerusalem would take place. And so I want you to see Jesus' response to this. Come on, we know. We know who he really is, but he's dealing with the blindness of of a people who cannot see. He's dealing with hostility. How does he respond to this? Let me me just read a little bit of this story to you so, so that we can set the stage. Luke chapter 19, verse 38. Uh, This is what it says. This is the people. Now, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But watch the switch. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so we've got this picture that that even though the, the people are shouting his praise, what we also hear in the background is the, is the work of those religious leaders who were trying to do away with Jesus, and Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows that even though these people are praising him, very soon they're going to follow those leaders. They are going to reject him. They're going to crucify him. And he knows that within a generation, this whole city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Listen to how Jesus describes that day. Let's skip to verse 43. Look at what it says. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. It was John who said that Jesus came to his own and his own didn't receive him. God visited his people in the flesh and they rejected him. And Jesus on this day riding into Jerusalem, he sees the sin and the blindness. And I want you to listen to how he responds. Verse 
41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he what? He wept. He wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He wept. Even though they are rejecting him, even though he knows he will be crucified, Jesus is weeping. And make sure you understand, he is not weeping for himself. It very clearly says here, he is weeping for the city. He is weeping for the people. And I'm telling you, these are the pictures of Jesus that lead me to confidently say to you, you have never met anyone like Jesus. What makes him so different, what makes him so set apart is that he unites in himself so many qualities that in other people are contrary to each other. And what I want to show you today is an example of that. When we see Jesus on this day riding into Jerusalem, it is truly a picture of might and mercy. Might and mercy. Now, come on, we can, we, can, we can imagine might, we can imagine sovereignty, powerful, mighty, and then we can imagine, right, tender-hearted mercy. But my question is, to, to whom do we look to combine in perfect proportion merciful might and mighty mercy? And the answer is, it's Jesus. That's the whole list. He's the only one who demonstrates such in absolute infinite perfection. There are no other religious leaders. There are no other political contenders in this list. It's Jesus. And I would argue No one matches either his might or his mercy. But what leaves us stunned is that he is both in infinite perfection. Now let's start with the might. And I just want to show you a couple of places in this story where we see who he is as the might, the mighty king. All right? Check out verse 37. Check out verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. When you think of the might of who Jesus is, a part of that, he was a worker of miracles. And these people had seen it. He healed Leprosy with a touch. He made the blind see and and, and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. He commanded the unclean spirits and they obeyed him. He commanded the waves and they obeyed him. He walks on water. He, He takes five loaves and two fish and he feeds thousands. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day, These people have some idea of what he is capable of. In fact, 
they believe there's no stopping him. If the demons run at just his spoken word, then I bet the Romans will too. He's sovereign. He's king. He's might. Now, skip to verse 38. Check out verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This king is not just any king. This king is sent by God. Even these people on that day, they believe this is by divine appointment. This king, he is sent from God. They knew their Bible. And so they knew what the prophet Isaiah had said about this king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah said, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. An eternal, never-ending kingdom. The king of the universe who rules over nations and galaxies. A king who today, even a country like the United States of America, is like a grain of sand in his hand. I just want to put this in perspective a little bit. We should get this. Because we're not good at even, even acting like we're in control. <laughs> we're, we're not good at even acting like we're mighty. One of the things, one of the things that I watch happen really often in the world in which we live right now is I'm watching people try to figure out what to do in a day where they now know literally a thousand times more stuff than they used to be able to know. Because over the last several decades, the ability for you to hold in your hand something that can feed you information that in an instant something happens on the other side of the world and you know it. And this heartbreaking thing happens and you know it. And this heartbreaking thing happens and you know it. And all day long, you are fed information. And all day long, you get news of what's going on, things that are broken, how, how people treat one another, right? Heartbreaking stuff all, all over the world. You Some of y'all don't know this. There was a day where we didn't know squat. It took a while for information to flow and you would only hear some of those stories. I, I, I'm not exaggerating this. That there was a day where you kind of only knew what was going on in your neighborhood. You kind of only knew what was going on in your town. But now you have access to the information of the whole world and I'm watching a lot of people whose hearts don't know what to do with that. 
And the reason is because you and I aren't built to handle the whole world. There's only one who's built to know everything that happened, every instant, every moment around the world. And not only is he mighty enough to know it, but actually mighty enough to do something with it. We just struggle with knowing part of it. We just struggle with, with knowing how to juggle our, our emotions and the effect of, of just a little bit of what we know. No, we're talking about one here who is truly sovereign. He is truly king. He is truly mighty that he can wrap his arms around it all, including you, including you. It would do some of us well to turn a little bit of the information off. I'm not saying it's not good to be able to know some things that are going on, but it might do some of us well to turn a little bit of that information off and instead turn our hearts toward the one who already knows all that information. He's might. He is might. Let me give you one more picture of his might. Verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they, the people, keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The rocks will cry out. Why? Will, why? Because he will be praised. Do you know that the whole design of this universe is that Jesus be praised? That's why it's here. And so if people don't do it, he will see to it that the rocks get it done. He's going to get what he means to get. He is sovereign, he is king, and he is might. Now just a note. Sometimes I have heard people argue that the tears that we read about in this story that Jesus sheds would be evidence that he's not really the sovereign king. Those tears, right, show that, that his purpose and his plan, I mean, he wants these people to, to know the truth and, and yet they will reject him and eventually they're going to kill him and some would argue that the tears in this story are evidence that he is not might. But you need to, you need to, you need to know something. I, I, I'm going to show you his, his death is not failure of his plan. It's actually the fulfillment of it. And if you've been reading along with us in the Gospel of Luke, just last week, chapter 18, this is something that we read. Jesus said, verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets that means it's already been written hundreds of, hundreds of years before. Everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Now, he could have stopped right there and we go, well, I wonder what he's talking about. He didn't stop right there. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Jesus Right? Everything that was written long ago, he said. The betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the flogging, the murder, it was all planned. This, the rejection and the unbelief and the hostility that he faces on this day as he rides into Jerusalem, it is not a surprise to him. It was actually a part of this plan. 
And Jesus said so before it ever happened. But here's the real big point that I want you to see today. This mighty king, this mighty king weeps. He weeps. He's weeping over the the hard-hearted, perishing Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, his tears of mercy are not a contradiction to his might. His might and his mercy exist in infinite perfection. In fact, we, we admire might more when it is merciful might. And we admire mercy more when it is mighty mercy. So I want to show you how this mighty king demonstrates mercy. The first way, his mercy is a mercy that feels sorrow. Now don't forget, we're talking about the son of God here. He feels the sorrow of the situation. And not because the plan has failed. We've already seen that. He knows what's going to unfold. It is not because he rides into Jerusalem and suddenly the whole thing's falling apart. No, it's exactly what he said would happen. His sorrow, his tears are not because the plan has failed. I would submit to you, it, just, it means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than you ever thought he is. God feels the brokenness of people. Do you, do you know that? God feels the brokenness of people. If you never shed any tears for somebody else's loss, could that mean that we are perhaps a bit too wrapped up in ourselves? And come on, I know what we do. I know how we play this game. We play this game, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sorrowful people, but, you know, we just don't shed tears. I, I'm, ju- I'm just not a crier, right? I, I, I just, I just I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, if Jesus cries <laughs> over the brokenness of others and I don't, who is the weak one in this picture? Who is the weak one? I I would challenge some of us out of today to ask God, God, would you give me tears like yours? Now listen to what I'm about to tell you. I, I pray and I hope that you have a deep inner peace that God is in control and that God's purposes will come to pass always, no matter what you're going through. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter how big the obstacle seems to be, my prayer is that you have a deep inner peace, that God is in control, and that God's purposes will come to pass. But that does not mean the absence of tears. That's what Jesus shows us. Because I'm saying when you die and stand before the king, If if he asks us, like, 
how did you feel about the suffering around you? What are we going to say? And somehow I doubt on that day that we're going to feel good about saying, well, actually, I I was able to see through a lot of that stuff. I I was able to see through it. There are just a lot of people who bring suffering on themselves because of the, the foolish decisions that they make. I wonder if the king would say to us, I didn't ask you what you saw through. I asked you what you felt. On a day like today, a Mother's Day, that is filled with joy, celebration, praise, there is also a part of this day that we have to realize loss. And I don't mean just moms that are lost, but I mean moms who have lost. I want you to listen to these words. It was John Stott who said it this way. In a world of suffering, I couldn't believe in a God who was somehow immune to it. I don't really want someone at my son's deathbed telling me Well, just you wait. He's going to get a new body. I want a Jesus who waits with me and weeps with me. Yes, he's going to give us new bodies. But right now, my son's body is giving out. And Jesus isn't immune. He suffers with us. He meets us with his tears. That's why I will tell you, you have never met anybody like Jesus. Where the king of the universe will weep with you. Might and mercy. If Jesus feels compassion and he weeps, do you? Do you? Let me show you the second picture of his mercy. It is the fact that His is mercy that sacrificially moves toward need. It's mercy that sacrificially moves toward need. This is a picture. Jesus is is self-denying, right? This text is a part of the story where Jesus is intentionally moving towards suffering and death. He's on his way to the cross. We just read it from chapter 18. He knows where he's going, and he intentionally goes there. This is the meaning of self-denial, and this is the way that we follow Jesus. What is it that Jesus sees? He sees the sin of the world. What is it that Jesus sees? He sees broken lives. What is it that Jesus sees? He sees the consequences of lives that are not connected to him. It is a torment of hell that that goes on and on and on forever. And so what does Jesus do? In his mercy, he moves toward the need. Sacrificially. I'm saying, that's what we do. 
if you follow Jesus, this is, this is the way it works for us. We see the need, we move with Jesus whatever it costs toward the need, willing to give up the comfort and, and security. We're, we're, we're even willing to give up avoiding other people's pain. Ever done that? Yeah. Some of us have become experts that when we see other people hurt, we start moving the other direction. I get it. Because it's painful. And it's messy. But listen to me. If you follow Jesus, you can't do that. You can't do that. Because when Jesus sees the need, he moves toward the need. Not run from it. Let me give you one more picture of mercy. It's mercy that helps. It is mercy that helps. Um, the point here is just uh, mercy does things that help people. That's where it goes. What, what is Jesus doing? He's dying in our place. He dies in our place that we could be forgiven and have eternal life with him. I would call that help. That's what he's doing. And I realize for us, as we, as we think about putting this into practice, can you make people take help? No. Sometimes you wish you could. Sometimes you wish you could just grab onto them, right? And Because and, you see, right, they need help, but you can't make. The question is, is not can you make people receive help. The issue for us is when I see the need, am I moving toward the need and seeking to help in the name of the king of might and mercy? Because if that person is willing to be helped, Jesus will do it. Our role is to move toward the need. Sometimes it just means being with somebody. Just being with them. You ever been in those moments where you couldn't give them anything? You couldn't change the circumstance. You couldn't fix what, but you can just be with them. There are other times that you can provide something, sometimes even money. And I know when we talk about this, this is where it always goes. But Jeff, Jeff, how, how, how do you deal with not being taken advantage of Right? That's what makes us want to turn and run the other direction. It's like when you, when you see people who hurt, when you see a need, how, how do I not get taken advantage of? Because there, there are those people that all they actually want to do is just take and take and take. They don't really even want to get help and heal. And I'm going to say this one more time. When you die and stand before the king, I don't think there is ever going to be a moment in heaven where we celebrate the fact that we were right about being cautious in generosity. I don't think that moment exists. I don't think there's going to be some moment in heaven where, where we stand before the king and we go, I saw right through their schemes. I, I, I actually worked up a list of questions that I knew how to ask. And so when they would answer my questions, then I, I, I would always know, right, when, when they're just trying to take something. And, and I was able, right, to, to avoid being taken advantage of. I don't think there's going to be some moment in heaven where we are going to celebrate 
celebrate our shrewdness for not being generous. I would remind you that even sinners give to those who deserve to be given to. Jesus' mercy is different. It's offered to those who don't deserve it, and it is offered to those who sometimes don't even want it. Did you know that there is a statue of a dude on a horse at ground zero? Did you know that? It is an 18-foot bronze sculpture overlooking the site of the World Trade Center attack on September 11, 2001. And the purpose of the dude on the horse is to tell a little-known story. The story goes like this. Literally within days of 9-11, U.S. Army Special Operations Units were actively engaged in Afghanistan, trailing the Taliban. You ready for this? On horseback. Given the mountainous northern Afghanistan terrain, the Afghan tribes actually provided horses for those soldiers to navigate the territory. And, and the story is most of those soldiers had never been on a horse before. In the age of modern warfare, it is remarkable that the initial response to the worst attack on American soil was fought in the same cavalry style as the forefathers of our country. Mark Noosh, he's a Green Beret. He was the captain in charge of Operational Detachment Alpha 595. This is, they're, they're known as the horse soldiers. This is what he said. We had horses in an attack against tanks, rockets, and machines. But they had so much success that along the way, it encouraged smaller rebel groups to join with those soldiers, and by the time it was done, there was a force of almost 2,000 mounted soldiers. They were the first U.S. soldiers to ride horses into combat in more than 50 years. Success was by unconventional means. And today, my prayer is that you and I will recognize the same thing is true for followers of Jesus. We fight against an enemy who seeks to blind the eyes of people to the truth of how great Jesus is. And what I'm reminding you of today is that this will not be fought with tanks or rockets or machines. In fact, in this war, it won't even be fought with horses. This war will be won by unconventional means. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our commander, he is mighty. Mighty enough to conquer the grave. but merciful enough to lay down his life. And I'm telling you, if the church is going to see victory in a day 
where we live in a time where people more informed than we've ever been, and yet, come on, the people that you know, they are less trusting. They are less trusting. They are less connected. A sense of isolation. We, we live in that day. It is going to require that Jesus' followers are willing to navigate the treacherous terrain with unconventional means, and that unconventional means is called mercy. It's mercy. This is how you will get to the heart of your children. I told you. Do you give them truth? Absolutely. You got to give them truth. You got to pass along truth. You got to live it. You got to speak it. But mercy is how you get to their heart. This is how you'll get to your neighbors. Neighbors that are sometimes distrustful. Neighbors that have become more isolated. But this is how you get to their heart. I got, I've got two prayers going into today. One prayer is that you and I will worship Jesus for who he is. He is might and he is mercy. And my hope today is that you see that a little clearer and that you, it would lead you to worship him because you have never met anybody like Jesus. But my second prayer is that when we see him, it will make us a people who are merciful feeling sorrow, seeing others' needs above ourselves and being helpful. Because come on, if I claim I follow a Jesus who is mighty, does my life look like I believe that truth? And if I claim to follow a Jesus who is merciful, does my life look like I believe that truth? Together, let's ask God, what are some practical ways that he can teach us to live mercy that he might get to the heart of a people that he loves and he wants? He is might and he is mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I think it's pretty common for us to come together and declare that you're great, at least with our words. It's pretty common for us to come together and declare that you are king, at least with our words. It's common for us to come together and, and declare that, that you are might you are strong, that you are powerful, that you are sovereign. But God, my prayer today is that it may be so that our lives begin to reflect that we believe such truth. God, I, I, I'm asking that the way, God, we navigate the stuff of this world, the way we navigate the brokenness around us, that, that God, we look like a people who truly believe that you are the God who still has his hands on it all and you have not lost control.
God, out of such might, might you make us a people who are not afraid. Not afraid even of sometimes being taken advantage of. God, sometimes being a people who who feel like we risk and lose. Because the truth is, we got nothing to lose. (laughs) It's all yours. It's all yours. And God, when you make us yours, our, our lives, the resources, everything about us, God, it is yours. And my prayer today, God, may we see this picture of your mercy and might it become the picture of who we are as your people. God, there are some of us in this room that some tears are what need to break first. God, there are some of us that our our kids need to see some tears. God, our spouse may need to see some tears. God, maybe a neighbor. God, some people around us who hurt that. God, would you give us tears that look like yours because you've given us eyes to see the brokenness. And even though we know, we know that you can heal and we know that you're in control, God, we still feel the sorrow. And then, God, will you give us courage to move toward the need? God, even when it needs to be sacrificial, even when it costs us, God, in the, in the whole scope of things, we have eternity with you. God, will you give us courage to be a part of you helping people around us? God, even today, will you bring to our hearts practical ways, God, practical ways that we can demonstrate your mercy that hearts might see your greatness. God, I I love you. I thank you for being so good to us. I thank you for your word today. I thank you for making it plain. I thank you that we can understand it, but God, may it go beyond just an understanding. May it become a description of my heart, of our heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray it.